Welcome to Tiski Sour. Four great stories for you tonight. Three great guests. Got Paul Rogers on Ukraine, Freddie McConnell on the first trans MP to come out openly as trans in the UK. And I've got Dahlia Gabriel for my two other stories this evening. Partygate is back. Rishi Sunak struggling to hide his wealth. Dahlia, I cannot wait to talk to you about those two massive stories. The fish rots from the head down when it comes to the British state. Honestly, ghastly. <laughs> I'm just glad Rishi Sunak is now contaminated. I was getting very frustrated when he was, you know, managing to to keep himself removed from all of these gross controversies. He, he's now fully in them. We are now on day 35 of Russia's war with Ukraine. It's still incredibly brutal, with entire cities destroyed by Russian bombing. But in the last two days, we've also seen some rare glimmers of hope. Ahead of yesterday's talks in Istanbul, the FT reported that Russia was dropping its demand that Ukraine be denazified and would not oppose Ukraine joining the EU so long as it remained militarily neutral. At those talks, the Ukrainian delegation said their country was ready to declare itself permanently neutral and discuss Russian territorial claims in exchange for security guarantees. And after the talks ended, an aide to President Zelensky called the Russian delegation constructive. There has been a lot of speculation that Russia's offer to pull back troops from near Kyiv is a response to military failures in that region. Ukraine have been launching successful counterattacks around the capital, and it's expected that if they do pull back their military from Kyiv, it will be redeployed to strengthen Russian forces in the east and south of the country. Now, in case you're wondering why that would increase trust, why would it increase trust to move your military from one part of the country you're invading to another? Well, they would argue their initial explicit war aims were to liberate the Donbass. And so what they are doing is, is they're putting their military there. Obviously, the Ukrainians can say, well, if all you want is for us to recognize the independence of Donbass, why are you surrounding Kyiv? The Russians can say, okay, well, we get your point. We are going to move our troops back from Kyiv and we're going to move them to those parts of the country where we pretend to have a claim to. Perhaps unsurprisingly, though, neither President Zelensky nor President Biden have expressed much confidence that the Russians will stick to their word. We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. We'll see if they follow through on what they're suggesting. There are negotiations that have begun today or not begun, continued today, one in Turkey and others. I had a meeting with the heads of state of uh, our four allies in NATO, France, Germany, uh, uh, the United States and, uh, and, uh, uh, and Great Britain. And uh, there seems to be a consensus that uh, let's just see what they have to offer. We'll find out what they do. But in the meantime, we're going to continue to keep strong the sanctions. We're going to continue to provide the Ukrainian military with their capacity to defend themselves. And we're going to continue to keep a close eye on what's going on. Today, the Russian side also tempered expectations with Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov telling journalists that from the Russian perspective, peace talks had not brought about significant breakthroughs. And as to the movement of troops on the ground, a US official told the BBC, yes, we have seen the Russians begin to draw away from Kyiv, but we have little confidence at this stage that it marks some significant shift or a meaningful retreat. The Russians are still pounding Kyiv with airstrikes. Time will tell. Russia has also been accused of intensifying the bombardment in Chernihiv following the talks. 
Chernihiv is in northern Ukraine and not connected to the eastern regions that Russia said it would focus on, the city's mayor told The Guardian. The night was just as we expected, that everything Russia promised is a lie from the beginning till the end. That's why at night we had some serious shelling and the Russians were trying to destroy all possible means of crossing Desna River towards Kyiv. The locals live in a real humanitarian crisis for weeks with no electricity, no heating, no water. Only in some areas of the city there's gas, natural gas, not petrol. Thousands of buildings are destroyed. Yesterday, our district Loika was shelled especially heavily where a few people died and dozens were injured. To discuss these developments, earlier today I spoke to Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. I began by asking him how seriously we should take Russia's claim they're drawing down troops from near Kiev in order to increase trust. I think we should take seriously the claims they're withdrawing troops. Whether it's to build trust is another matter. The reality is that their original plan to take Kiev right at the start in the first two days essentially came to nothing. The Ukrainians were too quick for them in defending it, and essentially the whole plan came apart because of that. Since then, we've moved more to a, a sort of city bombardment tactic, particularly for Ukraine, uh, for Kiev. And in fact, they've not even been able to get their artillery close enough to the center of the city to do anything but fire at the suburbs, and occasional long-range missiles have gone nearer to the center. So they are in a position where uh, many of their troops are worn out. They're now having to withdraw some, and they're having to bring in reserves as well. The indications are that they've given up, at least in the short term, in trying to take Kiev and get a government to their liking. And I think what they're now doing is probably reconfiguring things, possibly moving troops to the northeast to try and expand their control of the two oblasts, which have sort of gone their own way. But it's not even clear that they can do that. They've committed probably something of the order of 70% of the available forces across the whole of Russia to this venture at present. And they're now calling in up to 5,000 Syrian mercenaries to supplement the troops that they have on the ground. So overall, they're in fairly serious trouble. But I don't think that basically they're making um, necessity out of what is, let me put that away, they're basically using the opportunity to give the impression they're looking for a more peaceful solution. But I don't even hold them to that at the present time. There's not enough evidence to support that. What should be the strategy of each side when it comes to peace negotiations? And I suppose especially, especially sort of any, any ceasefire, because you could argue that, you know, obviously a ceasefire is to the immediate benefit of the civilians of, of Ukraine. You might also say that if Russia only want a ceasefire so they have time to regroup, actually maybe the Ukraine shouldn't give them that. And, and while they're on the retreat, they should keep doing these, these counterattacks. How do you think both sides are approaching these? these negotiations from a strategic perspective? I think for different reasons, both sides would welcome some sort of short-term ceasefire, the Ukrainians as well as the Russians, because the Ukrainians would like to be able to give some of their people a rest. They've been involved in a very bitter warfare for a long time. And also, the more supplies they can get in from the rest of NATO, the better as far as they're concerned, particularly longer-range anti-aircraft missiles, and possibly the kinds of missiles you can use in what's termed counter-battery fire, actually destroying artillery at a distance of 30 so kilometers. So I think the Ukrainians would actually accept it as well. And the other possibility is you have to get any kind of ceasefire. It can be the beginning of rather more serious negotiations. So overall, even a short-term ceasefire, I think, would be probably acceptable under certain conditions, precise conditions, to both sides at present. 
Let's talk about peace negotiations and the substantive points that are being argued over. There are some positive noises about Ukraine having said they are willing to accept they won't join NATO, willing to accept neutrality, so long as there are some kind of security guarantees which they can rely on. Um, could you talk about what those security guarantees could look like? What situation could be acceptable to both Ukraine and Russia? I think they would not want any limitations on what defences they themselves can put together. Historically, there have been occasions where a country has accepted neutrality, able to develop its own armed forces, but those have been primarily defensive. One thinks of for Austria, I think, in 1954, when partition was ended, and Ukraine would probably want that sort of condition. The external guarantees, this would be trickier. Obviously, Russia would not accept NATO per se, but there might be a way in which the Ukrainians could get a combination of countries, some of which have their own reasonably strong defense forces, possibly Germany, to be involved. And I think on the basis of what might be possible, once you get the idea there, then that's when you get the professional negotiators in, the mediators, if you like, who can perhaps help. The real issue is whether anything gets started in the first place. It was quite a big concession for the Ukrainians to actually say they were interested in the possibility of neutrality. And essentially, um, in the normal circumstances, you would expect Putin, with all the problems that he has, to jump at it. But the point is that I think with Putin, you're dealing with somebody who is absolutely determined to get his way. He still believes in the idea of a Eurasia with Russia at the head of it. I don't think that has changed. He's probably extremely frustrated at the uh, the lack of progress. Uh, you sense that in the first four days, that fourth day when he was warning about basically tactical nuclear weapon use, that things had really gone quite badly wrong. So I think in a sense, uh, he still holds on to a long-term claim. I think what he's looking for now is basically control over a large part of the Donbass territory, maybe all of it, which of course includes those two oblasts, but a lot more, and also real entrenchment in, uh, in uh, Crimea with a clear link along the coast, which implies that Mariupol would actually have to fall to the Russians. That is a great deal for the Ukrainians to accept. And the other issue is there's particular doubts as to whether Russia could even control the whole of the Donbass region. Some of the sources that are coming out of interesting Western think tanks of the rest, ones which I tend to rely on, are actually suggesting that the Russian forces are so bled by what they've experienced is they may not even be in a condition of present to actually extend their control of Donbass, even when they're redeploying from some other parts of Ukraine. And by the by, I don't think there's going to be anything like a full withdrawal from Mount Kiev. They will hold forces there in defensive positions. The bottom line with all of this is that, broadly speaking, a country which is trying to attack positions of another power, it needs something like between a three and five to one advantage in person power. And of course, if it turns out that the Russians are embedded in parts of Donbass region, it will be very difficult for the Ukrainians to actually oust them. One other thing to say, which I don't think is widely realized, it's not at all clear that the Russians actually would want to annex any more territory in Ukraine above Crimea. And the reason is that if you take the Donbass region, particularly those two oblasts, they've suffered huge damage. They're very underdeveloped, and it would cost an arm and a leg for Russia to actually see those develop fully. So Russians tell me that there's already a lot of bad feeling within Russia over the cost of Crimea. And that was, what, eight or nine years ago. And the euphoria felt immediately after that was taken 
but somewhat diminished. The sheer cost of maintaining these territories, and bear in mind that Russia is not a huge economy, has a smaller GDP than Britain, about the same as uh, Italy or Spain. So it's more complex than might, one might think. But nevertheless, Putin still has this ideal of the sort of greater Russia future. And I don't see him getting rid of that in the near future, I'm afraid. I want your take on how the narrative of the war has changed over the past two weeks, because it seems quite striking to me that, say, just a week or two ago, the dominant question was, does Putin sort of having disappointments on the battlefield mean that he will resort to nuclear weapons or chemical weapons? That was the big fear. The big fear was escalation. Now it seems that we're talking on the terms that Putin, because he is having a disappointing you know, battle on the ground, might now accept lesser demands than what he initially set out with. Do you think that represents sort of a real change in the balance of risks and the, the intentions and plans of Putin and the Russian forces? Or do you think this might be sort of the media getting carried away with different narratives where one just replaces the other and it doesn't really represent anything that's sort of objectively changed? The changing narratives are clearly there. You see it repeatedly in the media. But in, in relation to your question, I don't know. I don't think I can be asked at present. We simply don't know where Putin is coming from, given this stage in the conflict. I think it's wise to assume that he has not given up yet. I think it is less likely now that he will entertain the use of chemical weapons. Their purpose serves little military purpose at all. It's basically to create terror in the minds of people who may experience them. They are not as dangerous as people think in most circumstances. But of course, they do create terror. That is still possible. There's been talk from some of the Russian sources about seeing the rigor of the sanctions such that they basically are weapons of war with the implications that could be a response there. And I think it is still possible that Putin may threaten some escalation, the implication being to tactical nuclear weapons, because of the, bluntly put, the success of the supply lines going into Ukraine. Because some of the more modern weapons that the Ukrainian forces are getting, both anti-tank, anti-armor, and also anti-aircraft, mean that it presents serious difficulties for Russia, even to hold on to what they're actually getting. But that is where I think there's still a risk, I'm afraid. And that could be quite a sudden, unexpected threat, or even an escalation. We're not out of the woods on that at the moment. Finally, can I ask you to, I suppose, rate the, the role of the West in this so far? Do you think they've been de-escalatory or escalatory? Do you think they've been providing a, a sensible amount of support to Ukraine? Do you think they've, they've struck that balance right? That's a really tricky one. I mean, I think if they'd gone any farther, then there would have been serious problems. But on the other hand, they know full well that they can only push Putin a certain way. I think they have been deterred by these threats of possible escalation. I think they really have which is really a big problem for anybody who believes in nuclear deterrence from the NATO side. This is not working out. It is meant to work out. Wider than that, I think uh, many people in the arms industries uh, are welcoming what has happened with open arms. I mean, the, the expenditure by Russia as well as uh, the West is going to be huge. And you know, times are going to be very good for the armorers. And always, of course, they will welcome the opportunity to sell their weapons more widely abroad. So you will see that although these hypersonic weapons that the Russians have been using have not worked particularly well, at least according to American sources, they will still be using them in their sales brochures for elsewhere in the world. The arms companies in the West undoubtedly will be using the success of the anti-tank missiles and the advanced stingers and the rest for all they're worth. 
So it's a great time to be an armorer. And you've seen that in the pretty big uh, boost to stock exchange prices for a number of the world's big arms industries. So overall, what you can say is the armorers are basically doing very well out of this. Ordinary people are doing extremely badly out of this. And more generally, I think there still has to be huge rethinking of what we even mean by security in this particular age. It's easy to do that worldwide. We know what the global problem is going to be. We have this added dimension of, in a sense, military industrial complexes on both sides really having a bit of a field day in terms of their own purposes. That was Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Let's go to our next story. The Metropolitan Police have issued fines to 20 people over lockdown parties in Downing Street. This is just the first tranche of fines, presumably for the most open and shut cases. And we're yet to find out whether Boris Johnson will receive one. But whether or not the PM does receive a fine, that any have been issued at all should cause him headaches. That's because it would appear they contradict a number of statements Johnson previously made to Parliament. Mr Speaker, uh, what I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that, uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. But I repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken. And that is what I have been repeatedly assured. It is against the ministerial code to lie to Parliament, and breaking the ministerial code is a resignation offence. But Dominic Raab suggested that 20 fines do not imply Johnson had been dishonest. The Prime Minister was updating Parliament to the best of his knowledge and his understanding. Of course there were, uh, and that's very different, um, uh, for, so, so if, he, if he's made, a, uh, if he said something which turned out not to be true, because we now know that there have been 20 fixed penalty notices, I mean, we, we, we accepted that there were all sorts of claims and allegations that needed to be independently investigated. That's why Sue Gray conducted the review. That's why the Met conducted their investigation. We embraced that. Um, but I think it's something rather different to say that he lied, which suggests that um, he was deliberately misleading. But we've seen, there's, there's we, no, since no, he said those words, we've seen pictures of him at some of these gatherings. He knew he was there. Sorry, you're, you're conflating all sorts of things. And, 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 and uh, first of all, the, the PM has not, uh, to date, been um, uh, issued with a fixed penalty notice, uh, and you're, uh, you're 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 making sort of assertions that he was at at parties where, uh, in relation to photos, which I don't think demonstrate that. The point you asked me was about the ministerial code. I think it's one thing. I mean, clearly, uh, we had the investigations because of the uh, claims and the assertions that were made, which were right to follow up, and it's clear there have been breaches of the law. But to to jump from that to saying that the prime minister deliberately misled. Uh, Parliament rather than answering to the best of his ability. I'm afraid it's just not right. You note Dominic Raab there accepted that the law had been broken during Downing Street parties. That's obviously the case. The fines have been issued precisely because COVID laws were broken. But later in the day, Boris Johnson's spokesperson pushed back against the claim there had been criminality in Downing Street. Boris Johnson was asked about this stance or his stance at a meeting of the Commons Liaison Committee. If you are serving one of them, you're, you're pretty much toast, aren't you? I mean, no Prime Minister could possibly survive find, being found of criminality for the very rules that that Prime Minister set. You'd, you'd be finished if you got one. Well, I, I, with, with deepest uh, 
respect to you, Pete. I, 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 I don't in any way wish to, to minimise the importance of the of the issue and, and, and your point, but I, I just want to return to to what I've said, and that is that um, that that would would come under the category of of, of running commentary, in, in my view. Getting away from running commentary, you, you can at least accept that there has been criminality committed. We, apparently, your spokespersons just contradicted the assertions made by the Justice Secretary, your deputy, this morning that there has been criminality committed. You, you, you do accept that criminality has been 28. Six penalty notices have been issued for goodness sake. There can't be any contradiction in that well, criminality. So, I, I've been, I, I hope, uh, very frank with the House about uh, where I think we've we've gone wrong and uh, the things that I, I regret that I, I apologise for. Um, but in there is an ongoing investigation and. Um, I, I, I understand. I understand. The, I understand the point you're making, Pete. But I, I'm going to, uh, you know, camp pretty firmly on uh, on my position. I mean, I, very much the words that you use. I've tried to be as clear as I can, and I think that's the big concern that people have: is that you're not able to be uh, clear or straight on these issues if you can't even answer the question as to whether any laws were broken in Whitehall during lockdown when 20 fixed penalty notices were issued yesterday. Can you at least give a clear answer on that? Well, uh, you, you say 20 fixed penalty notices were issued uh, yesterday. I, I'm, I'm not certain of, of that, but you, you, may be, you may know something that I don't. What? You may know something I don't. I assume what he's referring to is, you know, the news yesterday was the police say they are too fine, 20 people. It's not entirely clear if that happened yesterday or today, but that's completely besides the point. 20 people either have got fines or are getting fines because they broke the law in Downing Street. That's the only reason you can get one of those fines. If you think you didn't break the law, you can refuse to pay them. You can dispute them. You can go to court. And I presume these people would lose and it would be incredibly embarrassing. But the fact they have accepted the fines means they have accepted they broke the law. There is no ambiguity. You cannot say, I'm not going to comment on this because an investigation is ongoing. This is just a simple fact. This is basic legal 101. If you get given a fine for breaking the law, you have broken the law. This is the thing about law and order politics, right? Because let, let's not forget, Boris Johnson is a politician who has made his career off the basis of this law and order reputation. You know, he's made making speeches in front of rows of cops or or being pro more policing at the border, etc. Uh, clearly, as we can see here, law and order is not this neutral tool of justice that is applied equally. It, it never has, it never will be. And in Tory Britain in particular, it's law and order for the poor and it's anything goes for the rich and powerful. And that's what we're seeing unfold in this situation. Because let, it's, it's important to remember in moments like this, that on a daily basis in this country, black people are stopped and searched in the street for no reason other than they look suspicious or they might have something on them. A few weeks ago, a young black girl was strip searched at her school on the mere suspicion that she may have had weed on her. 
And not to mention as well that thousands and thousands of people, disproportionately black men, are on a gangs matrix database on the basis that they are haven't actually done anything, but are are considered to be at risk of doing something that could be categorized as gang violence. And obviously what gets categorized as gang violence is in itself very racialized and very uh, deliberate. Thousands of people, predominantly of Muslim backgrounds, have been referred to to prevent on the basis that they are suspected of possibly being at risk of being radicalized. So it is absolutely normal in this country for people to be criminalized on the basis just purely of suspicion, to face more consequences than we are seeing here, purely on the basis and have and have serious impacts on their lives on the mere basis that they may be at risk of doing something and not even having done anything. And yet at the very top of our political system, we have ministers that are so emboldened to break rules that are actually there for a reason. The, the, the rule to not have big gatherings in the middle of a pandemic, that's actually a law worth following, uh, a rule worth following, because it could actually cause risk to people in that workplace or, or people outside of that workplace. They felt so emboldened to break that rule. They announced in emails that they were planning on having this party, that they were planning on breaking rules. They, they weren't afraid of leaving a paper trail. Police were present at the rule-breaking parties, not to stop them, but to actually protect them. And so after all that, not only have the Met Police been reluctant to actually do anything, reluctant to actually, you know, name the names of the people who, who have been fined. They were even reluctant to investigate. Not only has the Prime Minister lied in Parliament and, and to the people that about the rule breaking without any consequence to that lying, but even once they have been caught red-handed, even once it is now undoubtable, we know what happened. They can't you know, squirm out of it with their, you know, classics education and their their big English words, they are still able to evade accountability. They can still stand up and weasel their way out, as we've seen with this performance from Boris Johnson, and weasel their way out of the significance of what has taken place. And so what that tells me is that not only has Boris Johnson not learned a thing, not only has this done nothing to actually challenge the relationships of power that have led to this problem. You know, the understanding that, that the power of the prime minister, the power of politicians is an unaccountable power. The establishment as a whole has not been forced to change its ways as a result of what has happened, as a result of this scandal that meant so much to the British people, and I'm sure continues to mean so much to, 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 the, pe to the people that, have, that elected this party into power. And so there is this still this very clear understanding amongst the powerful that policing and law and order politics and state punishment is there as a tool that they can use to discipline working class people. It is not something that they, as rich and powerful people, are remotely scared of because they quite rightly, quite correctly, don't see it as something that applies to them. So that's what I get from this story is that the whole fallacy of law and order is really just a code word for we are willing to brutalize and criminalize and lay down this tool of oppression against working class people, against black people, against Muslim people. But we are absolutely enshrined from that, you know, sheltered from that.
ourselves, us and our bodies. We see the law and order as something that protects us from working class people rather than something that protects working class people from us. That point about sort of the double standards that are used to assign guilt to people is really important. You know, when there are these situations when someone hasn't committed any crime, they're not found to have committed any crime, but they're stopped and searched or brutalized by the police. The response you often hear from people in power, often in a sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink way, not not always explicit, is, well, there's no smoke without fire, is there? You know, the police wouldn't have searched them if there wasn't something going on, even if they didn't find anything. Now you have a situation where people have literally been found to have broken the law and are now facing the consequences for it. Not severe consequences. £200 fine, I'm sure these people could afford it. And even then, when it's in black and white, they have been found to have broken the law. Boris Johnson's like, well, maybe they haven't. It's just a completely different burden of proof for one group of people compared to another group of people when it comes to, have you done something which is illegal? Do you deserve the attention of of the police? Let's talk about the Tories more generally. They didn't seem too worried about law-breaking at Downing Street. On the same day that the Met revealed that 20 fines would be issued, they gathered in the ballroom of a plush hotel near Westminster Bridge for a party. It was hosted by Boris Johnson to soften up his MPs and ITV that was there to talk to Tories in attendance. You'll also see a protest by families of people killed by COVID. Is this party going to help you forget all the others that happened in Downing Street? Well, we're going to have a lot of fun, I know that, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, it was great. We had a photo taken. It was absolutely super. So you're having a, a jolly old time? Well, it's occasionally nice, once every two or three years, to get together. Mr Bridgen. Yes. Is dinner and drinks going to buy your loyalty tonight? No, but um, the international security situation will. Mr Duncan Smith, are you ready to forgive and forget the parties in number 10? Well, I don't think it's got to do with the dinner. What are you hoping to hear from the PM? Uh, good stuff as he normally does. Not in particular to try and uh, repair morale after party game. Morale's pretty good, actually. Why? Ian Duncan good. Smith, is this a happy party? Off to another party, are we? Is, is this party going to help you forget all the other parties in number 10, Mr Mandel? It's not a party, it's uh, colleagues getting together. Well, there's, there's, there's wine, isn't there? And there's dinner, it sounds like a party. It's uh, colleagues getting together for uh, an opportunity to bond with colleagues that we haven't seen for two years. Right. It's hard to tell whether David Mandel is being ironic at the end there. It's not a party, it's colleagues getting together. He said that when he was walking past protesters who had family members bereaved by COVID-19. like you. You really couldn't make it up how, how incredibly tasteless these people are willing to be. According to Politico as well, amongst the attendees at the bash were MPs who only a month ago were calling for Boris Johnson to resign. I cannot really see in any universe these spineless muppets toppling their prime minister, even if he is personally fined. Dahlia, does this all mean we are stuck with him? God, what does it say about the integrity of those backbench MPs that they can be so easily swooned and persuaded by just a couple of bottles of wine and a nice dinner? I mean, I'm almost glad they're so weak because I rarely agree with their political positions, but it's quite pathetic uh, to watch. But but when it comes to whether or not we are stuck with, with Boris Johnson, we are. But more importantly, we are it seems stuck with the system that produced him. So long as we just continue to see this as just a moral failing that is particular to Johnson. You know, Johnson is Teflon, but he's not Teflon because of some kind of innate, you know, 
unprecedented political savviness or smart. He's Teflon because he has the protection of multiple institutions and coalitions that are more powerful than him and are more powerful than his detractors, most importantly. Johnson is obviously a particularly, I think, obnoxious character. But but the meat of this story, the lack of accountability, the lack of justice for those people that were protesting in particular outside of, of that very party, that will continue. That's what we are stuck with. So long as, you know, the way that power is distributed in this country continues. Because, because ultimately, as you said, those fines, those fines are just a slap on the wrist. And, and justice itself, when you think about what, what justice would mean in this particular context, it's not just about punishment. It's not just about, okay, here's a fine or here's a condemnation or here's a, a consequence. Justice is about reckoning. It's about genuine accountability. And it's about change. That's actually the core part of of justice. It's about the sincere recognition that harm was created by something that you did. And in this case, there's the literal harm of having a gathering in the middle of a pandemic. But there's also the the damage, the more long-term damage that has been done, possibly irreversibly, or at least for quite a long time, which is the damage to the integrity of public health messaging. That's a catastrophe, considering that we are still in a pandemic. It's not at the intensity, but we are still, there are still the average, uh, there was an average of 20,000 hospitalizations due to COVID in in the past week. Cases are going up. So an actual recognition of that harm has clearly not in a meaningful way taken place. And we see that in the attitudes that were displayed by those uh, MPs walking to that party walking past the bereaved families of, of people who had died because of, of COVID. But, but justice, again, all, also most crucially involves a commitment to change so that those harms are not done again. And that, that's actually what is, is most important here. And for me, watching the ways in which the Tory party have closed ranks around Johnson are repeating the lines that sort of absolve him and absolve the people who who did this. And the fact that we've not got any concrete power in A, the relationship between politicians and media that meant that these parties happened and we didn't know about it, that the press was laughing along with Allegra Stratton about these parties taking place in the middle of lockdown, the relationship between the police and politicians, which is why these parties were allowed to happen in the first place under the eyes of the Metropolitan Police. And also the fact that we still live in a society where a tiny group of people have a level of power that seems to have no ceiling. It seems to have no limit. And so that's why justice has not been done. That's why we are stuck with Johnson and we are stuck with whoever the next Johnson will be and the Johnson after that will be. So that's really, for me, the key thing that we see, not just in that clip, but in the easy way with which we have forgotten the the gravity of what actually took place when Johnson not only oversaw a party that allowed these things to happen, but also the fact that he told barefaced lies about it and was able to completely evade any kind of consequence, let alone actually being forced to change in light of those consequences.
Yeah, that point about change is super important. I was just I was just pondering a bit more that comment from IDS Ian Duncan Smith when he said our spirits are quite high actually. And obviously that's very tasteless because he was walking past people who had families bereaved from from COVID on the same day that 20 people had got a, a fine for breaking COVID laws. But also you've got to think, what has changed between the time when spirits on the conservative benches were very low and now when they're very high? So they were very, very low in January when all of this party gate stuff was was coming out. I can't think of anything, you know, domestic that's happened since then that would make them particularly pleased, you know, would, would raise their spirits. We've got a cost of living crisis and their chancellor, his spring statement has gone down like a cup of cold sick. So the only thing that I think could have changed their spirits between January and now is the beginning of a brutal war on Ukraine. So the Tories like, oh, God, thank God this horrible war has come along because it started to make our, our prime minister look a bit more prime ministerial. Their spirits are very high. So the, the one upside of the brutal war in Ukraine with cities getting demolished is that now MPs in the Conservative Party feel a bit more sprightly than they did in January. It's pretty, pretty sickening to watch. Next story. Jamie Wallace has become the first MP in Britain to come out publicly as transgender. He revealed the news in this statement. I'm trans, or to be more accurate, I want to be. I've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria and I've felt this way since I was a very young child. I had no intention of ever sharing this with you. I always imagined I would leave politics well before I ever said this out loud. There was a close call in April 2020 when someone blackmailed me, outed me to my father and sent photographs to other family members. He wanted £50,000 to keep quiet. The police were so supportive, so understanding, and on this occasion, the system worked. He pled guilty and was sentenced to two years and nine months in prison. For a while, it seemed as though I would be able to get on with things and move on. Being an MP and hiding something like this was always going to be tough, but I arrogantly assumed I was up for it. Well, I'm not. A few months back in September, I hooked up with someone who I met online, and when I chose to say no on the basis that he wouldn't wear a condom, he chose to rape me. I have not been myself since this incident, and I don't think I will ever recover. It is not something you ever forget, and it is not something you ever move on from. Since then, things have really taken a tumble. I am not okay. When I crashed my car on the 28th of November, I fled the scene. I did so because I was terrified. I have PTSD, and I honestly have no idea what I was doing, except I was overcome by an overwhelming sense of fear. I am sorry that it appears I ran away, but this isn't how it happened in the moment. Tonight, I was reminded the incredible support those you work with can provide. Also, I was reminded how important it is to be yourself. I have never lived my truth, and I'm not sure how. Perhaps it starts with telling everyone. That's a very brave statement. I read you so much of it because there's a lot going on there. I thought all the context was was important to to see. And Jamie Wallace has received a lot of public support, including from the Prime Minister. He responded to Wallace's statement at PMQs. Mr Speaker, the whole House will have read the statement today from my honourable friend, the member for Bridge End. And I know uh, that the House stands uh, with you and will give you the support that you need to leave, to live freely as yourself. Jamie Wallace is a Conservative MP and he said that the Tory whips have been very supportive. But that hasn't always been the impression the Tories give off publicly. The day before Wallace came out as trans, Boris Johnson opened with this gag at a dinner for MPs. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, or as Keir Starmer would put it, 
people who are assigned female or male at birth. We can sort of imagine them all chortling to that kind of gross joke. Boris Johnson was, of course, referring to an interview where Keir Starmer struggled to answer a question about gender and genitalia. And in his morning email, Alex Wickham suggested we can expect to see more of these jibes from the Tories as we gear up for the next election. They have clearly been preparing to make trans people a wedge issue in in any upcoming election. It's not going to be pretty if they go ahead with those plans. But could Wallace's decision make them rethink? Earlier today, I spoke to Freddie McConnell, a trans journalist who writes on LGBT issues. I started by asking him about the significance of a British MP coming out as trans. Yeah, I think it's hard to say straight away how significant this will or won't be. I think obviously Jamie Wallace has had a pretty stressful time of it and has been forced to out himself before he felt ready to. I think it's pretty despicable that we're still facing that kind of situation today that someone could be blackmailed, especially given the the hostile atmosphere that trans people currently face in the UK. I can absolutely sympathise with his reluctance to come out now and before now. And I just think it's really sad to to read that, you know, he was planning to leave politics before moving on with that part of his life more privately. The fact that he obviously, I would guess, kind of felt that he didn't really have a choice, whereas I don't think gay or lesbian people still face that kind of a stark choice. So, yeah, I, I don't think he should feel any pressure to immediately go out and change the Conservative Party, especially right now when they seem to be amping up their anti-trans rhetoric literally day by day and we're now hearing it from the prime minister which is which is a new thing you know he's historically kept fairly quiet on this which isn't good in and of itself but it's better than him giving out these anti-trans dog whistles which we're now hearing i hope that he will reflect on the way he's manipulating and using the trans community so cynically to his own political ends and and that the party as a whole will stop doing that and maybe that they will actually appoint some people in the equalities um the equalities office who are actually interested in equalities and that it won't become a kind of a, a dead letter in government. So the Conservatives, I mean, obviously, at best, have a very mixed record on trans issues. Were you at all pleasantly surprised that Boris Johnson came out and, and welcomed this announcement and that sort of in the House of Commons, there was sort of, you know, it seemed like there was sort of universal welcoming of this of this statement? Or do you think they sort of had no choice but to do that? Yeah, I, I'm pausing. It's hard to say. It's, it's It's very confusing. I feel like as a trans person, you just kind of have constant whiplash in terms of trying to understand our position in society. One minute we are, you know, yeah, literally used as a, as a political football. Well, that's almost too too gentle a way to put it. And the next people are talking about welcoming a trans MP or we're having this, um, is it free to be me conference later in the year? So on the one hand, you have Liz Truss sort of saying very dangerous things and spreading dangerous misinformation about trans women specifically and then lauding the UK's approach to LGBT equality overall. I think this thing seems like a kind of continuation of that. I mean, maybe the positivity will continue. I'm happy, I'm, I'm relieved, I suppose, for Jamie Wallace that that maybe hopefully his stress can now come to an end personally. Like, I can't imagine the burden of having to keep that secret and worrying about it coming out in a way that you can't control. Yeah, I think I think there's always this tricky thing, right, for trans people where on the one hand, you have your colleagues, whether you're in politics or whether like for me in journalism, you have your colleagues and you're generally treated with respect. And, you know, if you have issues, you can go to HR and there's all these things, these routes that we can kind of pursue. Um, and, you know, you can even take things to tribunal and trans people have won at 
employment tribunals. But then on the other hand, you have the the broader, the bigger rhetoric, whether it's your newspaper and its editorial line or whether it's your political party and their and their political ends. So I think that 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 dualism will exist for Jamie Wallace. Uh, I can't really see it coming to an end in the Conservative Party, and I can't imagine how difficult that would be to navigate when you're being respected by your colleagues to your face, but then they're going out on telly on the radio and saying the opposite. <sighs> I don't know how much, much longer that can go on for, to be honest. And this announcement from Jamie Wallace comes in a week when the Conservatives have very clearly been trying to make trans issues a wedge issue, and the media have been playing their part too. And this is sort of come to the fore with many Labour politicians being asked on the radio, can women have penises? Can men get pregnant? All questions like this intended to, you know, basically catch them out to be provocative. How do you think Labour should respond to that? How should a Labour politician answer questions like that? The kind of idealist in me wants to say, well, when you're asked, can a woman have a penis or can a man get pregnant? Your answer should be yes, <laughs> because that's the simple fact of it. And as a man who has been pregnant, obviously, I can personally attest to that. And I, and I, you know, we know why that is the case. And there's lots of interesting talking points to explore on that topic. But the realist and the pragmatist in me knows that that's not really what's being asked. <laughs> it's not a good faith question, right? Like, it's a trap. So I think the only thing they can do, and I think Angela Rayner did this quite well with Kay Burley the other day, is to shut it down. Because I think I think even, you know, anti-trans politicians and, and media outlets operating in bad faith about trans issues at the moment will look back in five or ten years' time and feel deep shame that they reduced the conversation to this point, to like asking, you know, cynical questions about people's genitals. I think they must tell themselves that they're like doing good journalism, but it's not. <laughs> It's just gross and it's not right. So yeah, I, I think I think not answering, I think refusing to answer and, and taking a more kind of principled stand is is the right thing to do. Especially because if you do try to engage with it in good faith and, and talk about <laughs> what the reality is, as we've seen with people like I think West Streeting, you know, you can be well intentioned, but you can also get it quite badly wrong. And that can be more damaging for trans people ultimately. And can we talk about pronouns? Because Jamie Wallace was assigned male at birth. They've now come out as trans, but he's still, he still, he clarified today on, on Twitter, I should say, that he wants to be referred to as he, him, at least for now. So, you know, some indication that that might change. Could you talk about sort of, I suppose, in a way, the order that these things happen? So, you know, I think most people would expect when you come out as trans, you change your pronouns. Could you talk about how people take this journey in, in different ways? Yeah, I think that's the key thing, like different ways, right? Like, and I can only really talk about my experience, I think, in response to this question. And I, I can already sense before even answering it that like every single trans person will have a different response. And probably a lot of people, a lot of trans people won't be able to relate to even my experience. But in a way, I can relate to Jamie Wallace's experience because, and this is, I'm assuming things are here, but if it comes from a place of, um, of kind of nervousness and, and of really, you know, like I said, he hasn't been involved of this process. He doesn't feel ready. I mean, when I came out, I really struggled to ask people to use different pronouns for me because I hadn't been able to access the medical transition that I felt I really needed in order to sort of be who I felt I was. So as a kind of quite shy, introverted individual, it's, it's a big thing, you know, putting yourself out there and saying to the world, actually, this is me and it's quite different from what you thought. 
without having the support of like maybe hormone replacement therapy or a different appearance or a different name to help people come on that journey with you. And I'm not saying that those those things are necessary. And obviously lots of trans people don't even access medical transition at all. But I think for those that do and for those that feel that it's necessary, yeah, that when when you ask people to, to use different pronouns, like it's a really personal choice. I would have found it a lot easier to be on testosterone uh, and, and be kind of feeling more like myself before I had to then explain that to the world. And obviously, Jamie is in a public position, so it's a hundred times worse, I can imagine, in terms of feeling very scrutinized and feeling like you've got to kind of do it right and feeling like I, I felt like I was sort of asking quite a lot of people to see me as someone differently, even though I'd always felt that way. Other people, it was completely new to other people. So I can imagine that he is just taking his time and um, and I totally understand that. And it really is a different journey for every individual. And ultimately, like, it's none of our business. <laughs> that was journalist Freddie McConnell speaking to me earlier today. Next story. In our show following Rishi Sunak's spring statement, we showed you this picture. Rishi Sunak filling up his Kia Rio with petrol. He's smiling, we presume, because the fuel he's pumping is now 5p per litre cheaper thanks to his mini budget, though it's still around 40p more expensive than it was last year. Anyway, this turned out not to be Rishi's car. Rather, it was borrowed specifically for this photo op from a Sainsbury's member of staff. Fast forward to Monday, when Sunak was grilled by the Commons Treasury Committee and Labour's Siobhan McDonough asked this. I just wanted to let the Chancellor know that the cost in filling up my Kia Picanto has gone up from £30 to £54 in the time I've owned it. Mr Sunak, did you face a similar fuel hike in the time you've owned your Rio? <laughs> How long have you owned your car? About three years. Oh, mine, I think, is probably older than that. Um, so, Is uh, it a Picanto? Is it a Rio? No, Picanto? actually, we have a Golf. Okay. So, um, but yeah. you fill up other people's cars now? Uh, oh, yes, actually, I was an employee at Sainsbury. So according to Sunak, the family car is a Golf that's more than three years old. How humble for a family worth hundreds of millions. Except the Sunak's lifestyle is not humble, and their three-year-old Golf is not their only vehicle. The Mirror reports the Sunaks in fact own four cars and sources claim the Richmond MP's fleet includes a high-spec Range Rover. Prices for a new Range Rover start at £94,000. That's triple the median annual salary of a worker in Britain. Sources say he also owns a top-of-the-range Lexus, perhaps something like this, which costs £57,000. And the Sunaks also own a top-of-the-range BMW. BMWs start at £30,000 and top models can cost well over grand. It goes without saying, all four cars are much pricier than the Kia Sunak posed with after his spring statement. Rio's retail from £12,000. So, why do the Sunaks need so many cars? Well, they've got to spread them across their multiple houses. The Range Rover is for Sunak's North Yorkshire constituency mansion. You can see it pictured here. It's worth £1.5 million and is set in 12 acres of Yorkshire countryside. The Lexus and BMW are further afield in Santa Monica, California. No newspapers have published details of the Sunak's California apartment, but this $4.5 million condo is registered in the name of Rishi's wife. Finally, 
We assume the golf is stationed in London. Here's the, here the Sunaks reside in 11 Downing Street. But they also own this £7 million five-bedroom house in nearby Kensington. It's all a long way from filling up your Rio at Sainsbury's. Dahlia, with this much conspicuous wealth, Sunak will have a hard time hiding it, won't he? I was thinking back, actually, to, to last week when Sunak was on LBC and he got that call from that mother of two children who was telling him about basically how this cost of living crisis is going to affect her ability to just make ends meet for her children, despite both her and her husband having reasonably well-paying jobs. And her voice was like shaking out of fear of what was to come. And Sunak, kind of like a robot, like his brain just went like, okay, so my PR people say that when someone says something like this to you, you start with a statement of empathy. So he just kind of robotically goes, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. You know, I have two kids too. And, you know, I can't imagine how hard it must be. And of course, it goes without saying Sunak doesn't have two kids in the way that regular people have two kids. It's a very different experience uh, for him. Oh, I cannot imagine how hard this must be for you. That is, of course, absolutely true. He can't imagine it and he doesn't care to imagine it. Him and the people that he loves, him and the people that he cares about, that he feels affinity with, they are not only going to be insulated from the impacts of the cost of living crisis, but the suffering of working class people in the cost of living crisis is specifically engineered in order to protect those people that that constitute Sunak's world. You know, this is the world of, of oil and gas executives who are having their profits protected by Sunak lifting the cap on energy bills. The world of, of corporate executives who are going to continue to enjoy tax subsidies, to enjoy sub subsidies and tax breaks because the public are busy footing the bill of the crisis of the economy. And so that's how we need to understand these obscene displays of wealth that like no one, no one, it is unjustifiable for anyone to have wealth like that, particularly when the vast majority of people in this world are facing intense material exploitation and suffering. So we need to understand that this is, it's not just, oh, there's, there's one rule for them and there's one rule for us. It's, there's one rule for us so that it can be different rules for them. Our world is shrinking. Our lives are getting harder so that their lives can remain as easy as those pictures betrayed. And so it's incredibly important that that stark contrast, uh, that stark separation of worlds that we live in and that the, the Sunaks of the world live in, we have to make sure that when we, as we are facing the toughest years to come uh, when it comes to cost of living, that, that, that it's understood in those terms, that it's not just, oh, one group of people happen to be having an okay time and everyone else is having a really bad time. So we're having a bad time so they can continue to have a great time. You know, the cost of living crisis, it's not some kind of catastrophe that has just fallen from the sky out of context. It's engineered by political choices that have been made by Sunak and the political establishment that he, that he represents. A defense he could try. So, look, I am, I am stinking rich. I'm filthy rich. Loads of cars. But do you know how much it costs to heat a mansion in Yorkshire? 
You know, th these are costs that most of you plebs cannot imagine. You know, I, I might be worth 200 million pounds. My wife might have a billion dollars worth of shares in a company, but God, it takes a while to heat those rooms and then to keep them warm. This is incredibly expensive. We'll end on some good news, which is that Rishi Sunak's polling with the public has taken a dramatic nosedive. Sunak had almost unbeatable approval ratings when he brought in the furlough scheme at the start of the pandemic. Since then, the shine has worn off. 51% of the public disapprove of Sunak, only 36% approve. Let's just hope that that polling continues in that direction. This man needs to get what is coming to him. He's rich, he's out of touch, he has no compassion for the general population, as we you know, have seen from his spring statement. And I think by looking at his wealth, we can kind of see why. I think that's probably the explanation as to why he offered so little. Dali, we're going to wrap up here. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me. God, those images from Rishi Sunak's house. I just, I cannot imagine. There's a whole world out there that just is, yeah, it's just in, like when you see it in that stark contrast, it's absolutely wild. I wouldn't mind staying in that LA pad though. I mean, I'm sure I will never be able to. We will wrap up. Thank you all for watching us tonight. And make sure you join us on Friday evening at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.